Tickets, everyone? Tickets. Yes, thank you. I am your gracious host, The Creeper. Welcome to Carnival X. Tonight's show is a collection of four tales that include stories of a skeletal bride, some ghastly trick-or-treaters, a friendship request from a strange child, and more. Please step right this way into tent number one. In here, we will experience the story of a bride who waits for her groom to find her in a very peculiar place. Please enjoy our first tale, titled, There is talk of a bridal skeleton haunting my village. She wanted me to be her groom. There is an old Welsh myth about a doomed couple. In an old village not too far away from my hometown, every time someone got married, the bride hid, and the groom had to find her before the marriage could commence. But once, at the marriage of a local rich man's son and a baker's daughter, the groom could not find the bride. For five years he searched, and eventually it broke him. He committed suicide. That very same night, a lightning strike hit the biggest tree in the village. Inside was the skeleton of his pride. Growing up, I'd always thought the story of the hidden bride was a myth. But my uncle never agreed. He insisted that her skeletal form still flows through the air after dark, chasing him. Since he was the only person ever to claim this, and he had more alcohol in his blood than since, he was seen as a madman. Then, he disappeared. They never found his body, but they found his blood. I found his blood. I had been trick-or-treating with my friends on Halloween night. My uncle had disappeared only days before and I was doing it to make my mind of it all. We had made the usual rounds past the post office, up through the richer district, and we were taking a shortcut past the village cops to the church, the only well-respited source of full-size Snickers. But something caught my eye, and with every bone in my body, I wish it hadn't. There was a trail in the grass, It looked as if a disemboweled snake had dragged itself into the cops, but this blood smelled strong of Lancaster beer, uncle's favorite. My friends decided to run to the church and get help, but I chose to follow the trail. It took me into the cops, and that's where it started. The laughing. It was a joyful laughter, like one that might come from a couple playing on their wedding day. But only one voice laughed, and its laugh was distorted. Scratchy like granddad's old record player. 
and faster than is natural. Moving. Always moving. I would run to where I heard it, and all of a sudden it was over the road, or under the bridge I just ran over. Or, in this case, from just behind the tree my uncle's blood ran out at. In that moment, I ran to the church. I regret it, for I feel that night in the cops was my only chance to stop what was now in motion. Every time I was out after dark, the laughing haunted me. I started seeing things too, things I didn't want to be real. A floating silhouette, clad in dress and veil. Soon, it was more than a silhouette. A gray face made of rotted bones staring me down. Her cheekbones were high, and what remained of her other features, gaunt. I saw her form clinging to my window every night, bashing it, but her broken fingers could not break through. The doctors blamed it on the death of my uncle. They said that I was hallucinating the same as him, because that's what I thought killed him. And my parents believed them. I believed them until the bride finally got me. I was walking in the copse, heading to the spot my uncle's blood ran out, where I had placed a makeshift memorial for him. The skeletal bride descended upon me. She flew down from the highest tree, scaring the birds as she went. Her cold hands clasped around me, digging into my skull. I felt them wriggling in my skull like maggots. Suddenly, I had no more force to fight back. I fell unconscious, and my last sight was the ground hurtling toward me at an alarming rate. When I came back to my senses, the first thing I felt were the tight walls that confined me. I was stuck in a circular cell, cold wood surrounding me. Then the hands. They grew from the wood and wrapped around me. Freezing, skeletal fingers clasped my arms and legs. A hand grasped my jaw, pulling it open. I saw a human spine sliver up from the base of the tree. It curled backward like a snake about to bite, then jabbed itself into my mouth. I bit down, hard. The hands clasped tighter, then retreated back into the woodwork. The spine fell backwards, defeated. I threw my body at the wood walls of my container, breaking them faster than I expected. I fell forward, out onto the ground, and looked back where I came to see a gaping hole in a massive oak.
If that wasn't frightening enough to scare you away from marriage for good, nothing is. Please step this way to the second tent. In this tent, we have a fun-sized tale of a grandmother who doesn't want to leave her husband alone. I hope you enjoy our second tale of the evening, called Grandma's Ghost. In 2005, when I was 10 years old, my parents, my big brother and I all moved into our grandparents' house after my grandma died of cancer so we could take care of grandpa. They had a house with two floors. My grandpa's room was downstairs and we lived upstairs. There were a few weird things going on in this house that my whole family witnessed. But I want to start with this one. It was nighttime and my mom was sleeping in bed with me when she suddenly heard a noise. At first, she thought it came from outside, so she opened the window to listen. But, after a second, she realized it came from downstairs. I remember her telling me to stay upstairs, but I went downstairs after her. The noise came from my grandpa's bedroom as he was shouting for help. But, when my mom wanted to open his door, it was locked. We still don't know why it was locked, since he usually didn't do this. My mom asked what was wrong. He said he fell over and couldn't get up by himself, and couldn't move. So, I went upstairs to wake my brother. We tried to somehow unlock that door, with no success. My mom called an ambulance and the police to open the door. While we were waiting, we tried to open it again and again, but gave up at some point and just waited in front of his door, talking to him. A few minutes before the ambulance and police arrived, we heard the key turn around in his bedroom's door. None of us were touching it. And we immediately went in to look after my grandpa, who was sitting in the middle of his room, like two to three meters away from the door. Luckily, he was fine, but the ambulance still took him to the hospital, just to check and make sure. When my mom and my brother visited him in the hospital the next day to pick him up, my brother asked him how he managed to unlock the door, since he said he couldn't move and was sitting quite far away from the door. My grandpa just laughed and said, I didn't. What do you think, friends? Was it Grandma who locked Grandpa's door and terrorized him? Or was it some other... thing? Ah, well. 
It's time to move on to our third tale of the evening. Right this way. In this tent, we meet a mysterious child who really wants to be friends with our protagonists. For our third tale of the evening, please enjoy My Best Friend Disappeared a Week Before Halloween. We all have rituals, things we do to keep a sense of normalcy, to keep our feet on the ground. When I was a kid, my ritual was riding my bike down Coulter Street with my best friend Jonas. Every Saturday, we'd go to the top of the hill and ride down like the devil himself was after us. Coulter Street was steep and dangerous, but damn if it didn't feel good to ride down. We used to race each other at first but eventually, we just rode for the sake of riding. My life was kind of chaotic back then. My parents weren't always on great terms with each other, so riding down that hill was always an escape for me. Then one summer, when I turned 11 years old, everything changed. Jonas and I had made it to the top of Coulter Street like we always did. I'll never forget how hot it was that day. The humidity made it worse. Every step felt like you were walking through a sauna. We were getting ready to ride down when he showed up. There were two things that preceded his arrival. The sound of Mr. Abernathy's old dog barking wildly from somewhere in the distance, and the sound of wings flapping as a murder of crows made their ascent to the sky. Can I bike with you guys? He asked. Jonas and I turned in surprise at the sound of the voice. The kid standing before us looked about our age. His hair was brown and longish. His skin was pale and he had bags under his eyes. His clothes were tattered and looked like hand-me-downs. His bicycle looked ancient compared to the sleeker models Jonas and I had. He looked poor, but there was something else, too. When I think back on it, he looked mythic in some ways, like he had leapt from the pages of some lost great American novel. He looked completely out of place. Sure, I said. We're just gonna ride down the hill. You might be thinking how strange it is that I didn't ask the boy his name, but when you're 11 years old, those kind of things don't always jump to mind right away. Sometimes you meet a strange boy, and you don't ask him his name. And he was a strange boy. Not just how unkempt looking he was, but the town of Rayleigh wasn't very big. And I was familiar with just about every boy my age. Didn't know them all by name, but I knew of them at least. We all went to the same school, after all. In small towns like Rayleigh, everybody seems to know everybody. But I had never seen this kid before in my life. In any case, we rode down the hill. Me, 
Jonas, and the strange new boy. And when we reached the bottom, the boy just nodded and then rode away. Maybe he's from Jefferson, Jonas said when the boy was gone. Jefferson was another town that was far away. It seemed unlikely that he rode all the way from Jefferson on his own, so Jonas and I came to the conclusion that he must have moved from Jefferson to Rayleigh this summer with his folks. That's how we got to calling him the Jefferson Kid. Throughout the following week, Jonas and I wondered if the Jefferson Kid would show up again on Saturday to ride down with us. We joked about his sudden appearance the other day. But deep down, there was something being unspoken between us. The truth of it was, the Jefferson Kid had unsettled us. Not only intruding on our Saturday ritual, but there was something off about him. His old and tattered clothes, pale white skin, and those sunken, tired-looking eyes. Sure enough, the very next Saturday, he appeared again. This time, he didn't even ask our permission to bike with us. He simply rode up on that old-looking bike of his and nodded. Now, you might be thinking that this is when I finally asked him his name. But you'd be wrong. Instead, I turned to Jonas, who shrugged. And the shrug said everything to me. We wouldn't question the Jefferson kid. We'd simply allow him to be here with us. And so, the three of us rode down the hill. And when we reached the bottom, the Jefferson kid merely nodded again and rode off. And that's how our Saturdays went that summer. We'd reach the top of the hill, and without fail, the Jefferson kid would appear and we'd ride down with him. He never asked us our names, and we never asked his. During the week, Jonas and I never discussed how the Jefferson kid knew when to appear on Saturday especially when we didn't always go at the same time. We didn't discuss his tattered clothes or sunken eyes. We accepted his company while also completely ignoring him. Because there was something in the back of our heads that was screaming. Screaming that something was completely wrong about the boy. And neither Jonas nor I wanted to acknowledge it. And we never, ever spoke to the Jefferson kid as we reached the bottom of the hill. He would simply nod and ride away. That was until one Saturday late in August. We reached the bottom of the hill, but instead of nodding and riding away, the Jefferson kid turned to Jonas and me and spoke. You guys want to see my house? It was surreal hearing him talk. He had only ever said one thing to us before when he asked if he could bike with us. We had accepted him as a part of our ritual, and throughout the weeks he eventually blended in. Him speaking cut through all of that and reminded Jonas and me of his strange intrusion into our lives. Um, your house? was all I could say. 
Yeah, the Jefferson kid said. You want to come see it? Since we're friends and all. All this time, I had never considered the Jefferson kid my friend. Yet, hearing him call me that made me feel ashamed of myself. Of how coldly I had treated him during our bike rides. I turned to Jonas, and I could tell he was having the same reaction. When Jonas caught my eyes, he simply shrugged, though it was a meek and unsure shrug. Okay, I said. Let's go to your house. I have to eat supper soon, but I can come by for a little. Okay, the Jefferson kid said, smiling. Follow me. As we followed the Jefferson kid on our bikes, I was hoping he would lead us toward one of the familiar cul-de-sacs or neighborhoods around Rayleigh. But as we rode, I started to see that that wouldn't be the case. Because we were heading toward the edge of Rayleigh, toward the woods that surrounded the town. We turned onto one of the beat-up dirt roads that went through the woods. Eventually, we turned onto an even more beat-up path that took us deeper in. The trees seemed to leer down at us. It was getting dark, and I was starting to feel uneasy. The path was getting more overgrown the further we went, and less welcoming for riding. I had never gone this far into the woods before. Eventually, and surprisingly, we came upon a two-story house. It was the worst-looking home I had ever seen. If you looked up the word dilapidated in the dictionary, there would surely be a picture of this house. The roof seemed to be sinking in on itself. Many of the windows were boarded up or shattered. The wood was dark and mossy and the angles of the house were just wrong. I wouldn't have been able to describe it this way at the time, but now as an adult, I can tell you the house looked like something out of a 1920s German expressionist film. And there were no lights on. Yet, the Jefferson kid rode up to the house as casual as can be. Jonas and I merely stared at the house in shock. You live here? Jonas said. Sure do, the Jefferson kid said. He kicked out his bike stand and walked up the porch. The wood creaked horribly beneath his feet, and when he opened the door, I thought for sure it would come off its hinges. Through the doorway, I could see nothing but darkness. Are you your parents home? I asked. The Jefferson kid didn't answer. Instead, he stepped into the dark entryway. The shadows of the house enveloped him in an instant. Are you guys coming? The Jefferson kid's voice came from somewhere in the house, but he was not visible at all. Staring into the darkness of the doorway was almost hypnotizing. I could feel something pulling at me, inviting me into the house. I quickly turned away and blinked my eyes. Um, sorry, but I have to go now. Jonas does too, I said. And when I looked at Jonas, 
I could see he felt the same thing I had just felt. The pull. Already? The Jefferson kid said from inside that hellish home. Are you sure you don't want to come inside? This time I didn't answer. I turned my bike around and hit Jonas on the arm, and in seconds we were riding away. I didn't even know the way back. I simply rode. And this time, I really did feel as if the devil was behind me. We rode for what felt like an eternity, but eventually Jonas and I made it back onto the dirt road and eventually back into town, somehow. Jonas and I agreed on several things that night, that we would never go back to that house and that we would never ride down Coulter Street again for fear of running into the Jefferson kid. And if we ever did see the Jefferson kid again, we would not speak to him and we would tell each other. A couple of weeks had passed and the new school year was about to begin. The leaves had begun to turn from bright greens to shades of brown, yellow, and red. I loved fall. It was the perfect time of the year. Saying goodbye to those gross, humid days and hello to crisp, clear autumn weather. Those Saturdays spent with Jonas and the Jefferson kids started to feel like a surreal dream, even though not much time had actually passed. Jonas and I had not spoken about the house in the woods since that night. My mom dropped me off on the first day of school. She had another terrible argument with Dad that morning. I was beginning to miss those bike rides down Coulter Street. They were so good at clearing my head and making me forget my worries. But I couldn't risk going back there and running into... him. Seeing the school building would normally be demoralizing as I hated the end of summer. But on this day, it felt good. Wholesome even. And it was my first day of middle school. A whole new adventure awaited me. I was ready to put the events of the summer behind me. As I walked toward the building, I saw Jonas's familiar face. We slapped hands and made our way inside. Jonas seemed to be in good spirits. He made several jokes about the start of the year and which one of us would get a girlfriend first. Still, there was an unspoken question hanging between us. Would the Jefferson kid show up to school? We had both theorized that the Jefferson kid had moved from Jefferson to Rayleigh with his parents during the summer, although he never gave us his age. If I had to guess, I would have said he was 11, like Jonas and me. Which means, if he was going to school, he should have been there that day. As Jonas and I walked into our first class, I was almost terrified that we'd see the Jefferson kids sitting in the back of the room, wearing those old, tattered clothes, staring at us with those tired, sunken eyes. Want to come over to my house again? I shuddered at the thought, but as I walked in, he was nowhere to be seen, and he didn't show up at all throughout the rest of the day. And at the end of the day, I had almost completely forgotten about him. Almost. Because while there was a part of me that was terrified of running into him, 
there was another part of me that wanted him to show up. Because if he did show up to school, it would mean that maybe he was just a normal kid after all. Dirt poor and living in a dilapidated home in the woods, but normal all the same. After all, monsters don't go to school and get homework, right? I felt an alarming sense of dread as the last bell of the school day rang. The Jefferson kid didn't show up, which means the Jefferson kid might not have been a normal kid after all. He might not have been a kid in the first place. I kept thinking of that pulling sensation coming from the house, like something was beckoning me to walk into the house. The following weeks went fairly normally. I woke up, ate breakfast, mom and dad fought, mom dropped me off at school, I came home, did homework, woke up, rinse and repeat. I still hung out with Jonas on the weekends, though we didn't go biking as much. Part of it was that the weather was getting colder, but also, our bikes were a reminder of our time with the Jefferson kid. It wasn't until just a week before Halloween that things took a turn for the worse. I'll never forget that night. It was 9pm and I was sitting in the living room watching TV with my dad, who was nursing his fourth beer of the night. Phone rang and my mom answered. After what sounded like a worried conversation, my mom stepped in the living room, holding the phone to her shoulder. Sweetie, my mom said to me, have you seen Jonas today? Um, I saw him at school, I said. Did he say he was going anywhere today, after school? My mom asked. No, why? My mom didn't answer. She got back on the phone, and then a couple minutes later hung up and came back into the living room. That was Jonas's mom, my mother said. She said Jonas never came home today. They're going to be calling the police soon. Waste of resources, my father said. These kids always go running off. They'll show up again. Trust me. This resulted in another argument between my parents. I didn't even hear them. I had gotten good at zoning them out. I sat there and stared blankly at the television. Jonas never came home? What could have happened to him? But deep in the back of my head, I already knew the answer. I walked up to my bedroom and looked out the window. Our house was on a hill, not unlike Coulter Street. In the distance, if you looked hard enough, you could see just the beginnings of the woods that surrounded Rayleigh. And somewhere deep in those woods was a two-story house that was home to a boy that my friend Jonas and I called the Jefferson Kid. I didn't want to believe Jonas was there, but deep in the back of my head, there was a part of me that knew he was. And that part of me was screaming.
terrifying. Did the Jefferson kid finally lure Jonas into his house? If so, what happened to him? Many things to ponder, my friends. If you'll kindly follow me over to the fourth tent, we will get to our next story. Our final tale this evening features a Halloween humbug who is forced to grow up rather quickly. For your pleasure, we present Don't Ignore the Trick-or-Treaters When They Come Knocking. Respect Tradition. freezing winds, and all the trees are practically dead. But the one thing I hated the most about that holiday was all the damn trick-or-treating. I mean, come on. Who decided that once a year, everyone in the whole damn town had to buy a boatload of candy and feed other people's kids? I mean, the diabetes crisis aside, It just seems plain wrong that I'd be expected to assist in giving little Jennifer from down the road cavities. Anyway, that's what I used to think. That is how I used to act around this time of year. Until last year, that is. I remember it well. It was a blustery cold night, wind was howling, and I was just about to snuggle down with my dog and watch A Nightmare on Elm Street. Then I heard it, the all-too-familiar giggling of excited children as their little feet tapped their way up toward my door. Oh, no, you don't, I thought to myself. Switching out the lights, I bathed the room in darkness and closed the curtains for good measure. However... This appeared to do little to prevent the trick-or-treaters, for within moments of turning off the lights, it came. That high-pitched tone from the doorbell. I ignored it, defiantly. I refused to take part in a holiday created for the sole purpose of making confectionery companies profit. That infernal buzzer chimed, yet I refused to be moved. Time and again they came, new groups of kids from all over town. They'd ring my doorbell, as though it was some kind of whistle, commanding me to grant them the candy that they believed they were entitled to. However, each and every time they came, I just turned the volume higher on the TV, until Heather Langenkamp's screams and Robert England's nightmarish voice drowned out the doorbell. Eventually, the trick-or-treaters stopped coming. I know what you're thinking. God, what a scrounge. I was, but I don't deny it. My mother would always warn me not to be, to respect the holidays, especially Halloween. 
Bad things happen to those who ignore tradition, my mother would often warn. I wish her words had been in my mind that night. Perhaps it could have prevented all that was to come. Alas, I was not thinking of my mother's words that night. No. Instead, I was greedily shoveling popcorn and chocolate into my mouth, as me and Rex, my dog, watched Friday the 13th. Then I heard it, that blasted doorbell, ringing out, its buzzing sound spearing through the opening scene of the film. So up I turned the volume. They'd give up eventually, I thought. Went the doorbell, and before the chime could finish sounding out, it rang again and again, each time quicker than the last. Fine, I yelled. Clambering up from my seat, I went to the door, swinging it open. Before me, a child wrapped in toilet roll bandages, and another dressed up in a cheap-looking Dracula get-up, complete with a retro Dracula mask and slicked back hair. Trick or treat, the two boys called out. I'm sorry, I don't do Halloween, I said, but as I was about to close the door, the pair of them held up their burlap sack-like bags. Trick or treat, they simultaneously repeated, gesturing their bags up to me. Sorry, boys. I don't have any candy. Now please, you should go home. It's way too late to be trick-or-treating, I said, tapping my watch, which indicated the time was 11.30. Trick-or-treat, the pair spoke once more. This time, their voices twitching with a sense of urgency. No, I told you I don't do Halloween. Now go away, I shouted before slamming shut the door and charging back toward the living room. The doorbell chimed. That is it. I swear I'm going to lose it, I ranted to myself. However, as I opened the door, a gust of wind blew in and through the voices of children giggling and laughing echoed out. I found my doorstep in the street empty. Feeling a little spooked, I shut the door and went back to the living room. Yet no sooner had I sat down, I heard them again. Giggling and laughing, childish sounds running around outside of my living room window. Then came a great thwack. A noise so loud, it made both me and Rex jump up with fright. They're egging my house, I thought. So, like the self-assured idiot that I was, I pulled open the curtains. But it was an egg on my window. No, disturbingly, it was a small muddy handprint, just slap bang in the middle of the glass pane. I looked out into the dark and saw them, the pair of them standing beneath the flickering glow of the lamppost outside. Then, suddenly, they were gone. No joke, seriously, one minute they were there, 
I blinked, and then they were gone. Without warning, the television switched over, with the booming voice of the news anchor nearly causing me to leap from my skin. Looking at the television, I saw the dated and colorful newsroom and the vibrantly clothed female anchor. Her large, hairsprayed bouffant and pink blazer screamed 80s, but in contrast to her bright colors, the story she reported was anything but bright. The search for the two trick-or-treaters continues tonight as concerns grow for the boys' safety. Police are urging anyone with any information to come forward and have stated that while it's too soon to say anything, they are not ruling out the possibility of foul play, the presenter recited. I flicked the channel back over to what I was watching, but the minute I did, there was another loud thwack. Turning toward the window, I saw another handprint had smeared itself onto the glass. Tonight, the hunt for the missing twin brothers comes to a grisly and terrible end. Police have confirmed that the bodies found in the creek belong to the two boys who went missing only a week ago on Halloween night, the news presenter's voice declared. Her words came so abruptly that I was once again startled by them. Odd. Perhaps Rex sat on the remote when I wasn't looking. Yeah, that's rational. That's what I thought. However, my rationality began to slink away when I suddenly realized I had seen this televised news report before, a long time ago. It was almost a fleeting moment of remembrance, like the kind you get when reminiscing about a distant dream. Yet, I was certain. I had seen this woman, this report in fact, before. 1983. The Halloween when those kids went missing, that's where I had seen it. I remember being sat on the couch watching the news with my parents at either side of me, talking about how terrible it was that this had happened in our town. I was around the same age as the boys at the time of the disappearance. So, if this was that very same report, then why was it playing now on my television? I went to turn the channel over, but as I did, it instantly snapped back to that same 1980s news anchor with her bright pink blazer and large bouffant hair. Pressing the off button, the television screen went black for a minute. Then suddenly she was back on the screen, reporting the outdated news in her bright pink blazer. Police are urging anyone who saw the boys the night they disappeared to come forward. Tim and James Coltweather were last seen heading down toward Emerson Road on the 31st of October. The boys were dressed as Dracula and the Mummy. They're both 11 years old and quite small for their age, the newswoman recited, her voice electric and almost robotic. A cold feeling dawned on me. Emerson Road. That was my street. An even more dreaded realization sank in. Dracula and the Mummy. That's what they were dressed up as. Those kids who knocked at my door earlier. A cacophony of banging struck the windows of my house. 
shaking the structure of the room. It was like fireworks or cherry crackers were ricocheting around my two-floored home, battering every service with violent strikes. Stop it, I yelled. And instantly, it did just that. Everything fell silent, and Rex, my brave whippet axe, recoiled and shrunk, shrinking himself into the corner of the room as though he had seen a ghost. I approached the window to see the damage and found the window covered in filthy handprints. There had to be hundreds of them, all clustering together, caked in mud and other foul things. What the? I went to speak aloud, but my words stopped short. I noticed something. Something that thundered terror into my heart. Running my fingers across the pane, I felt the stinking rotten earth as its wet, dripping sludge smeared onto me. The handprints were on the inside. Backing away, I looked to Rex, but he scrambled from the corner of the room and raced upstairs. Urgently, I went to follow, only for the lights to flash on without warning, flickering above me and revealing festering fingerprints and dirty hands all over the room and all throughout the house. The bulb above me exploded, showering me in glass and sparks as I fell back. Everything went dark. The television, the lights, everything. All around me was a thick black veil and as I struggled to find my way toward the living room door, I felt it. A gust of wind raced past me, carrying with it the ghostly giggles of children. Trick. A coarse voice croaked from behind me. I reached for the door, but it slammed shut, locking me in the room with the invasive presence. Another voice wheezed. Chill crucified my feet to the spot and froze my body where it stood. Then came the smell, a wretched perfume that rolled in like a noxious fog. It filled the room and smothered the clean air, drowning my senses in a diseased miasma. I knew what the deathly stench was and I knew what awaited my eyes if I turned to look upon my tormentors. Trick or treat, the two groaned, their watery voices dripping the words into my ears and causing all the hair on the back of my neck to stand up. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't know, I whimpered. Turning around slowly, I saw them standing before me, their burlap sack bags held up toward me. Grotesquely, they no longer appeared as they had before. No. Their childlike visage of youthful boys, clothed in cheap costumes, was now butchered and mutilated beyond recognition. One of the boys was a rotten maggot pile of green, brown, and black sludge 
stuffed inside soaking wet toilet roll bandages. The other had a deep red line cut into the skin on his throat, and his empty eye sockets stared out from behind his damaged retro vampire mask. Worse still was his skin, which was a dreadful white and lumpy like porridge oats and black necrotic tears cracked his porcelain lips. Please, I didn't know. I didn't know. I stammered, my lips quivering with each and every syllable. Anxiously, I bowed my head and lowered my eyes, too afraid to look at their ghastly sight. Trick or treat, urged the mummy-dressed boy, the words almost causing his decayed jaw to snap off. Right, okay, I said. Nervously, I grabbed my popcorn bowl and the chocolate bars that I had out for my horror movie marathon and began to distribute the treats between them. With shaking hands, I tipped the popcorn into the dirty burlap sacks, which they held out to me, and placed a chocolate bar in each. Happy Halloween. The drowned Dracula wheezed, his words gurgling. Yeah, happy Halloween, I repeated whilst internally praying that this would sate their restless souls. Then, just like that, they were gone. And so were all the handprints and any other sign of their presence. Even the lights which had shattered above my head were seemingly restored as they flashed back on. Yet, despite light returning and the two specters having departed, me and my fearful companion Rex lay awake for the rest of the night. In fact, we didn't do much sleeping in the nights that followed. The ghostly visitation had left me frightened to my core, so much so that it made me go back and look up their case. It was awful. Two ten-year-old twin boys, taken before their time. They never found the sicko who killed the kids, but the police suspected that it had to be someone on Emerson Road. Worse still, they think that he must have snatched them when they came to his door and held them captive for days. The poor things were strangled and dumped in the river after a week or two. I've since moved away from Emerson Road, but even though I'm far from that place, the fear I felt that night has made sure of one thing. This Halloween, I will be answering the doors to trick-or-treaters and respecting the traditions of the holiday.
Let that be a lesson to you, Halloween haters. If you don't respect the tradition, the tradition will not respect you. Well, ladies and ghouls, that wraps up our presentation for the evening. I hope you enjoyed yourselves, and I look forward to seeing you again soon. Very soon. Remember to monster mash that subscribe button, and click the little Franken-chime next to it. That'll ensure that you'll be alerted by the elder YouTube gods when we present our next set of lovely tales to trick-or-treat by. Until next time, respect the tradition. <laughs>